Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2021 Dublin Festival of History, historian Donald Fallon speaks to Catherine Milligan and Nicola Pierce, two writers who have written recent books on the history of Dublin. The episode was recorded at the Printworks Dublin Castle on the 10th of October 2021. You go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Bayard Street and what he was like to know. He was a queer one, followed all the dido. He was a queer one, I tell you. My great-grandmother knew him well. He asked her to come and call on him in his flat and she giggled at the thought of a young girl's lovely fall. Oh, he was dangerous, followed all the dido. He was dangerous, I tell you. On Pembroke Road, look out for my ghost, dishevelled with shoes untied. Playing through the railings with little children, whose children have long since died. Oh, he was a nice man, followed all the dido. He was a nice man, I tell you. Go into a pub and listen well, if my voice still echoes there. Ask the men what their grandfathers thought, and they tell them to answer fair. Oh, he was eccentric, followed all the dido. He was eccentric, I tell you. He had the knack of making men feel as small as they really were, which meant as great as God had made them, but as male as they disliked his heir. Oh, he was a proud one, followed all the dido. He was a proud one, I tell you. If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, sniff for my personality. Is it vanity's vapour now? Oh, he was a vain one, followed all the dido. He was a vain one, I tell you. I saw his name with a hundred others in a book in the library. It said he had never fully achieved his potentiality. Oh, he was slothful, followed all the dido. He was slothful, I tell you. He knew that posterity has no use for anything but the soul. The lines that speak the passionate heart the spirit that lives alone. Oh, he was a lone one, followed all the dido. Yet he lived happily, I tell you. I wonder. Great to be back at real life events. And this one took its title from brilliant Paddy Kavanagh, whose voice we heard before, before Brendan. There was no career for Paddy in singing, I don't think, but it's a, it's a wonderful piece. as one of my favorite Dublin poems. And it seemed uh, the natural title for this event. All cities are ever-changing by their nature, uh, but few have reinvented themselves in quite the same way as Dublin. The city that Joyce christened the Hibernian metropolis, her journey from humble settlement to capital of a republic, passed through empire and largely skipped the Industrial Revolution. She's defined by magnificent architecture and historically by great deprivation, grey brick upon brick, Victorian red brick, grey, unyielding concrete, and more besides. It's a city that people are deeply passionate about yesterday, today, and tomorrow. My name is Donald Fallon. I'm the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast, a name derived from the city coat of arms. No castles burning today is the plan, and you already know where the emergency exits are. And I'm also the author of a new history from Tenement to Suburbia, uh, from 40 in Henrietta Street. Today, I'm joined by the authors of two really excellent 
and really different uh, new studies of the city to talk about Dublin. It's a really broad topic. We have Nicola Pierce, author of O'Connell Street, The History and Life of Dublin's Iconic Street. It's a really fascinating overview of a street that kind of serves as a microcosm of Irish history in the broadest sense. And when you read that book, you think, why did no one write this kind of survey history of O'Connell Street before? And Catherine Milligan, author of Painting Dublin, 1886 to 1949, visualizing a changing city. Uh, A study not merely of Dublin itself, but the various people who have depicted the city through the ages. Some very familiar names, like the great Jack B. Yeats and Harry Kernoff, and more forgotten talents, at least in the mainstream consciousness uh, of Dublin, like Rose Barton. And I think both of these books, they really bring a lot that is new and fresh uh, to Dublin studies. God, has any city been as written about and as talked about as Dublin? But these two books bring something very new to studies of the city, and we're going to talk about them in some detail today. Nicola, at the very outset, I was struck by something in your introduction. I thought this was a beautiful uh, way with words. History is not buildings nor streets, at least not by themselves. They only become important according to who they accommodate. So history is people, and this street has a full cast, the very rich and the very poor. Doctors, sculptors, architects, actors, writers, tailors, jewelers, booksellers, hoteliers, very popular at the moment, (laughs) revolutionaries, and lots more, and lots of traffic. And I'm curious, given your background, if you could talk a little bit about the books you've written before. They're pretty diverse, the Titanic, the Second World War, What drew you to writing a book about O'Connell Street? It was pure inspiration in the middle of the night. So I had uh, literally uh, woke up and thought there is not a book. I've never seen a book on O'Connell Street. So I had written four or five novels of historical fiction for children. Um, My novels are aimed at kids from nine years and upwards, and I've written about the Titanic and World War II, the Battle of Stalingrad and the Battle of the Boyne. And my latest is about an Arctic trip in 1845, 130 men losing their life, going off to the Northwest Passage. But in 2017, my publisher uh, had asked me to think about doing a history book on the Titanic for older readers, for adult readers, because my novel is my bestseller thus far. It's sold over 40,000 copies, which I always say is nothing compared to Harry Potter or David Williams, but it's something that I'm really proud of. So they asked me to do a history book, and I really, really enjoyed that, putting that together about the Titanic. And of course, I've been talking about the ship for about 10 years to children who can be scary and know a lot more about the ship than I do. So I really enjoyed that experience. I mean, I put a lot of research into all my novels. There really actually wasn't much difference between how I approached writing a children's novel and uh, the history book. So the Titanic book is coming out in 2018 and I dreamed of doing loads of festivals and talking to adults about the Titanic, but I was diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, the novel or the book came out. My oncologist allowed me to have my launch and because of the cancer diagnosis, over 100 people turned up and bought the book, which was just wonderful (laughs) for me and my publisher. So then my last children's novel comes out last year. And it comes out the week that COVID hit and the schools closed. <laughs> so I thought that cancer was going to be the big challenge, writing a novel about the Arctic or trying to get that finished, little knowing what was going to happen next. But I was starting to think I'd like to write another history book for adults. So I spent some time just dreaming up ideas. And it really was, was just the middle of the night, just kind of sitting bolt up straight. Because I did think, I hope I didn't dream it, I think RTE did a documentary on O'Connell Street years and years ago. I think it was just four episodes. 
And I just thought, I have never just seen a book about it. And I thought, I bet you I could probably tell very generally the story of Ireland just using that street, using the buildings, using the monuments. And that's what I hope I've done. You talk a little bit about the, the Battle of Stalingrad. I can feel a bit like the Battle of Stalingrad at three o'clock in the morning on a <laughs> street. But anyway, given that today uh, we're talking so much about Dublin and how it's been visualised, how it's been mm. portrayed, let's begin with this brilliant, very yeah. early depiction of a pre-O'Connell Street, O'Connell Street. Uh, I love how the illustrators back then, they always include things like sedan chairs and yeah. beggars and, the, and the, the characters of the city. This is Sackville Street and Gardiner's Mall by Joseph Tudor, uh, about 1750. It tells a little bit about those kind of Georgian beginnings, uh, how the street itself came into being. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it was probably one of the poshest places on, on the island. So this is what the mid-1700s, and Luke Gardner had acquired this massive estate in 1714. Now, previously had been Drada Street, owned by Henry Moore, who named all the streets in the area after himself. Luke Gardner acquires it after a, um, a court case, and probably for 20 years didn't have the money to do anything with it. So we come to the 1740s. And he changes the name from Drogheda Street to uh, Sackville Street. So Lord Sackville was twice Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. And probably Gardner was, uh, they were good friends with Sackville because he actually named one of his sons Sackville. So he's one of my favourite characters from this book. I mean, you know, I wanted to emphasise the fact I'm not a historian, I'm not an architect, um, I'm not a researcher, but I do like to tell stories. And Luke Gardner definitely jumps out at me. It just, if you read my book, I hope one thing that maybe jumps out is the importance of dreamers. And men, and well, women, but mostly men, sadly enough, with Acon Street and Drada Street and Sackville Street, men with vision. The likes of Luke Gardner, just looking at a dingy medieval street and thinking, I'm going to create something beautiful here that beautiful rich people will want to uh, live on. So the street was residential. He creates this mall that people, uh, the men, gentlemen and the ladies can take their walks away from carriage wheels or escape or uh, runaway horses. And it's all about, I think, living on show, walking up and down the promenade. That's O'Connell Street, will be O'Connell Street. So he uh, widens the street. It's twice the width of any other street around. He builds about 400 houses, all different sizes, but they all look gorgeous. And that's the point of it. They have to, have to look gorgeous. And it reminds me of Dr. Bartholomew Moss, who had this dream to build something beautiful for women in childbirth, the rotunda. That came out of a dream that he just had all by himself, that he wanted to create something beautiful. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the absence of, of women in the early history yeah. of the street. We'll come back to that later on in terms of O'Connell Street today and who, who we celebrate on the street and who we don't. Catherine, I was interested in, in your study, the years in which you set it. So it begins in 1886. Uh, it ends in 1949. Now, 1949, of course, is the, the declaration of, of a republic. But why begin your book at that point in the 1880s? Were you tempted to go back? I mean, we were just looking at it. The likes of these kind of great 18th century depictions of Dublin uh, as an art historian. Were you tempted to start with the Maltons, the Tudors, all that 18th century stuff? Or what was it about the 1880s that that was a natural place to start? Thanks, Donald. It's, it's a really interesting question. And I think, I suppose, when I started thinking about art in Dublin and, and how the city has been depicted through history... The books that you could go and already get were the Maltons and the Tudors. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, I don't want to go back over old ground. But, and when we look at art history generally, not the history of Dublin, but when we look at European and Western art history, 
we have in the second half of the 19th century this resurgence of interest in the city. Why? Because people are back living in cities, artists are going to the cities, you see it in Paris and London, these cities become hubs of artistic activity. So from an art historical point of view, the 1880s is a great place to start here. Ten years after the first Impressionist exhibitions, artists are travelling, they're trying new things, and they want to depict the place that they're living in in a different way. They're moving away from this wonderful but grand kind of panoptic vision that's as much about capturing it in architectural detail as it is about ex but its experience. They want to show the experience of living in the city, down on the streets, the, you know, the straw on the ground, the horses, and it's personal. It's, it's their vision of the city. So I suppose 1886 made sense from an art historical point of view. It makes sense in an Irish context when we think about that political history. You have the failure of the third home room bill. That, you know, that ball is rolling in terms of um, antiquarianism, the rediscovery of the kind of Celtic past, this snowballing of um, kind of political fervent that's going to flourish out in the, in the 20th century. So it made sense <laughs> for, for lots of different reasons and the book, to start there. The book takes a number of different artists through the ages of Dublin, yeah. some of which are very familiar and others aren't. This was the first artist who you really look at in great detail is Walter Osborne. This is an yeah. in, incredible uh, piece, a vendor of books. Could tell us a little bit about Walter Osborne, why he matters, and then kind of talk us through yeah. this work and, and the streetscape it, it depicts. Absolutely. So I suppose to say, first of all, for anyone who's not familiar with the book, it looks at six different artists spanning this late 19th and 20th century. So uh, Walter Osborne, Rose Barton, Jack Yates, Harry Kernoff, Stella Solomons, and Flora Mitchell. I always have to think about it. But anyway, Walter Osborne is the, the starting point, And it probably won't surprise you that this artwork is one of my favorites. If I could take something home from the National Gallery, it would be this. <laughs> and um, it was a strong contender, actually, for the cover of the book as well. It's an absolutely brilliant painting. If you haven't been into the Irish rooms in the National Gallery to see it, book your, book your ticket and get in there. We're on the quays. You can see there the new, as it was, pretty much new at the time, O'Connell Bridge, widened, still kind of gleaming uh, granite on it. The view down to the, to the Custom House, no loop line railway bridge, putting across your view, um, and just this wonderful kind of romantic light. Is it evening light? Is it, you know, it's quite ambiguous in terms of the time of day. But then, aside from all of that framing, we just have this wonderful um, snapshot of people living in the city. So you, if you look very closely, you'll see a couple of soldiers. So we have that little reminder. We've got a, a red-coated kind of cavalryman on the bridge. We've um, a Gordon Highlander here. So it's just that little reminder of, of the political situation in the city at that time. But obviously where he really draws our attention to is this vendor of books and the flower sellers in the kind of middle and foreground of the painting. We have our group of older men here around the secondhand bookstall. We know from other accounts that this area around kind of Aston Key, O'Connell Bridge, was really popular with secondhand booksellers. And they're very much engrossed in their, in their books. And then the kind of under, the other narrative of this painting is the flower seller. So we have the little girl in her bare feet, and she's going up and offering her daffodils. And we kind of link her then with the woman here who's standing on the, on the key wall, again, with her basket of flowers and the baby in her arms. We've maybe a little hint of a, a Guinness barge or something like that coming down the river here. The thing with these paintings is Osborne is obviously very aware of other artists painting the city, not just in Ireland, 
but in, specifically in London. So there's a little bit of a story. He's telling a story. He's not just showing us exactly how it was. He brings people together. So this woman with the baby, she's in about four of his other paintings as well. Um, so it's those artists like writers, they repeat narratives, they repeat characters. But all of that comes together just to give us this wonderfully evocative and quite, um, I think, quite a sensual sense of the city. Like the, you can almost smell the, you know, horse, man- horse manure and straw and everything. It has texture. It's, it's a really fantastic painting. And I know he was talking about later on, but Ernie O'Malley had a great line about early 20th century Dublin. He said that the, the layers of class were more plentiful than the layers of an onion. Yeah. And you kind of see it in a, in a picture like this, though, yeah. earlier. Who has shoes on their feet? Who doesn't? Yeah, exactly. And- then another great Walter Osborne is this. Yeah. I'd never seen this one before. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary. This this is at a time when he'd moved to St. Stephen's Green, the studio yeah. that he had been in before. And yeah. he kind of, it's fair to say he captures all social classes in, in, in the city. Absolutely. This is another great painting. And you can actually, you can almost see them side by side, um, the way they're hanging in the National Gallery at the moment. This is, a, and it's a, a, from an artistic sense, it's another great example how, of how he reuses and, and repeats things. So the painting is called In a Dublin Park, Light and Shade. So that tells you a couple of things. We're like, what Dublin Park? <laughs> like, where exactly is it? But he had just moved to his studio on Stephen's Green, around where kind of Topshop is now, <laughs> and <laughs> if, you, if you want to locate it. Um, and so obviously he, that brings him kind of away from Patrick Street and his paintings become much more lush. He's focusing on, on park life. But he also, we know that he paints in the Phoenix Park, but also this has elements of his own back garden in uh, Rathmines as well. But I think Donald's right that the the setting is secondary and the light and shade is interesting from an artistic point of view because especially when you see it, this foliage up in the upper corner, very much influenced by Impressionism and this loosening of the brushstroke. But what's important, it's the people he's showing us. We get this great survey from youth to old age. So we've got the young boy here on the left. Again, this mother and baby, very similar to what we saw in the last one. And there's actually a a study just of this mother and child in the Hugh Lane collection as well. So again, we have this repetition. And then these two older men at the end, and there's a wonderful sketch he makes of the back of these men sitting in St. Stephen's Green. So again, it's, it's showing us Dublin. It's showing us the, this survey of people who live there, but it's also this compilation of Dublin life And the incredible well. development in his own style and techniques. Ab- absolutely. Um, this, especially this, as I say, up in this top corner, this greenery, this light that's filtering to through the way it filters across, um, especially the face of, of the woman. It doesn't come across that well in the reproduction, but go and have a look at it. Then head up to the Hugh Lane, and there's another painting called Tea in the Garden, and you'll see some of the elements that I'm talking about there. And again, he's just um, moving away a little bit from that very restrained style of the earlier works. Nicola, a very different form of art, I suppose, is, is, is monuments uh, in the streetscape. Mm. And you couldn't really write a history of O'Connell Street without getting submerged in the monuments of the street, what's there and, and what isn't. And commemoration, of course, I think it's fair to say, is much more about to contemporary uh, than it ever is about the past. But monuments, they have great importance, I suppose, as, as symbolic markers. They reflect the changing values of a city. I love this illustration because Nelson is already there, mm-hmm. grossly disproportionate, actually, to the, to the reality of the monument. But you can see the foundation stone uh, of Daniel O'Connell uh, has just been unveiled. You give a lot of space to the monument of Daniel O'Connell in your book, uh, The Liberator. Talk a little bit about the significance of Foley's monument, even the way it transformed the street in, in, in popular consciousness. People began calling it O'Connell Street. Yeah, Daniel O'Connell definitely is a huge character for me, a huge favourite. And I think I probably started, you know, I got up the next day, 
I had to do a quick synopsis and a proposal, send it off to my publisher, I have this idea, History of O'Connell Street, uh, hopefully a readable, accessible book. And then when I went online, I realised how much information is available. It was just like, I don't even know where to start. I thought, Daniel O'Connell. So, uh, and also it was great because I'd forgotten everything I'd learned in school. So another reason I wanted to write this book was to learn Irish history. I could talk about the Battle of Stalingrad, the Titanic and Arctic expedition in 1845. <laughs> I really knew very little about Daniel O'Connell or Parnell, forgotten everything. But he, you know, it, it, he was the third, it was, this was the third monument that was built on the street. So we have Nelson's Pillar in 1808. We have, I want to say Thomas Gray, what's his name? John Gray. Gray. John Gray yeah. in, 70, in 1879. And then the Daniel Collin Monument is uh, 1882. And he was uh, an international celebrity. And I think he brings this element of internationalism to this city of Dublin. You know, in 1830, uh, Belgium, they were voting for their next king, I think it was, and three politicians, Belgian politicians, voted for Daniel O'Connell. This was a man who was known throughout Europe. And he had so many friends. He did so much for Ireland. He emancipated and freed the the Irish Catholic. Um, Actually, King George kind of sourly says he's a more king than I of Ireland. (laughs) And he just leads this extraordinary life that has such a sad, sad end at the end. And it's 1847. Ireland is, of course, ravaged by famine. And I think this has probably helped. This is breaking Daniel O'Connell's heart and he can't seem to find a way to keep helping Ireland. So he makes his last speech in 1847 in February and he can't be heard. Now, this is an orator who was uh, beloved of even his critics. One of my other favourites, I have a lot of favourites in this book, William Howard Russell. He's meant to be one of the world's first war correspondent, born in Talla, 1821, in Jobstown. Now, he didn't support O'Connell's politics, but he really liked the man. Um, I think they actually would kind of go out and have a pint together. And he just said, you know, his words were inelegant, his ideas were rubbish, um, but his fieriness, his passion, his fiery indignation, that's what, you know, I'd love to have heard a Daniel O'Connell speech. We were talking about audio, uh, and I'd love to hear his speech. But this must have been a huge change to the street. We've got Nelson, we've got Gray, um, and then Daniel O'Connell, who's ostensibly an Irishman, passionate, passionate about Irish people uh, wanting to free Ireland from English rule. And now we have this gorgeous monument. And this thing about that uh, we don't have women on the street, I suppose when you look at the monument, you've got the Maid of Erin, the Daniel O'Connell got the four angels and kind of looked like women to me. And I just, I think it's the most beautiful monument. And I've never really looked at it, I suppose, until writing this book. Uh, but it is the most gorgeous piece of work. And I noticed passing by recently that there's tape on Aaron's hand. Someone put a placard in her hand recently on a, a demonstration. A bit like Wellington in Glasgow with the traffic cone. And <laughs> People kind of interact now yeah. more and more with yeah. Daniel O'Connell. But to me, that statue, it's a symbol of a changing Dublin corporation an increasingly yeah. nationalist city, and it transforms the entire street in terms of its meaning, that, you know, yeah. uh, in time that Nelson would be kind of bookended on, on, on either side by, by an Irish nationalist. Yeah. It made the street Irish. Yeah. There it is, Foley's work, and there's yeah. Ireland herself pointing up, holding the act of Catholic yeah. emancipation, yeah. standing on broken chains. Just yeah. Beautiful. The idea of, um, you know, a city is ever-evolving and changing, monuments come and go, no monuments you mentioned in the book on the street to women. Yeah. Uh, there is a monument by a woman, Mary Redmond's statue of, of Father Theobald Matthew. 
Interestingly, on the day it was unveiled, they were interrupted by a drunk, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> temperance, temperance priest. But still no women depicted on the street. There's the modernism of the Spire of Light. Yeah. Great image of Liam Sutcliffe, who brought Nelson's Pillar crashing down into the street in 1966 with the Spire of Light behind him. I'm curious how you feel about it and kind of more modern interventions into kind of public art on the street and the missing monuments of the street as you see it. Yeah, the Spire, I don't think I really had any great feelings for initially. And I know that Mary Dunn didn't want it to be built. And I don't know if many of you remember Mary Dunn. She used to <laughs> dance and sing up and down the centre of a Street for years and years and years. I kind of miss her now, to be honest with you, when you walk down the street. But she said she hated the idea of the Spire. And then I asked a taxi man a few months before COVID, it was in the back of a taxi, and he loved it because he felt it gave Dublin a real edge, like kind of looks like something from a science fiction movie, and then with the loos going by, it just looks really exciting. And then this morning, I got a taxi from Conley Station to here, and I asked the taxi man, what do you think of the spire? Hey, because it's something to do with Bertie. Which <laughs> I hate Bertie. So <laughs> For me, though, you know, looking at it again, I actually do... Find I do love it. Um, I think it's very elegant. It completely fit the brief. They wanted something elegant. I think that's exactly what we have. It's not religious. It's not political. There's no colours, kind of, uh, you know, it doesn't wear a jersey of one kind or another. And I do, you know, and in fairness, I have no sense of direction. So the reason why I love that so much <laughs> is because it's rescued me so many times when I've gotten lost. I know all I have to do is look up since 2003 and find the spire and then I can find my way back. So I could, this is interesting then how it becomes part of our life. And same with Nelson's Pillar, when they first built mm. that, people just got used to it. And then, of course, was part of the, the terminus for the tram. So then it became part of the, you know, part of the city and part of where you went to meet your, the love of your life, whatever. Um, so it is interesting then how these monuments can work their way and are kind of become a part of our lives. So certainly I do feel um, I love the spire now. As a, you know, when it comes to women, I mean, we can talk about thousands of women. I mean, there's just, you know, um, I don't know, uh, Thomas Clark's widow, definitely, I think, should have. She was the first Lord Mayor, female Lord Mayor of Dublin. Uh, Kathleen Lynn, and then someone else was saying Catherine Corliss. You know, I mean, there's many, many heroes that uh, definitely I would love to see. And hopefully, you know, hopefully at some point there will be statues representing some of Ireland's wonderful women. Uh, this picture of Liam Sutcliffe, I should say, was taken by my brother, um, <laughs> Luke Fallon, who just saw, right. saw Liam on the street. And I often asked Liam if he regretted what he did, and sometimes he did, and sometimes he didn't, depending on the mood he was in uh, on that particular day. But I think it's fair to say very few people have transformed the appearance of O'Connell Street quite <laughs> yes. like Liam Sutcliffe for, for better or, or worse. Yeah. Uh, on the subject of women and their absence in, in commemoration in the streetscape, Catherine, your study yeah. gives space to some brilliant female artists, less familiar names in the city now. Rose Barton, who gave us beautiful Dublin depictions like this of the uh, Grattan statue. I'd never come across her work, I'm ashamed to say, uh, and often depictions of the castle and the world around it. Who was she? What drew you to her as an artist? And, and did you feel it was particularly important to get those female artists in, into the book? Yeah, it was really... From When I started researching this book, I always knew that I wanted there to be at least gender balance in the book because where the very first thing I did when I started this, all the way back in 2011 was I made lists from exhibition catalogues, so the Royal Hibernian Academy, the Watercolour Society of Ireland, the Dublin Sketching Club. I made lists of artists who exhibited works of Dublin, and women outnumbered men. I don't have an exact number, but I'm going to say 10 to 1. You know, mm -hmm. there were just so many women artists working in various capacities. Some of them were amateurs, they had a love of it, others had professional ambitions, like Rose 
Barton. So it was clear that when we look at the, the visual record of Dublin in fine art, women are incredibly important. Um, so Barton was also always going to go in for that reason, because in, certainly in the 19th century, she's the most prominent and I suppose most commercially successful woman um, painting Dublin. And I also thought it was important to have her because her politics, or at least maybe not her own politics, but her family background tells us a, another side of the city at that time. She's, now she, we have no archives for Rose Barton. We have no diaries. We have a couple of letters. So this is my reading of the situation. But she comes from a family, a, a, her father's a lawyer, and they're very much involved in the Dublin Castle circles, the, the circle of the vo- viceroy. She's presented at court in the, in the state apartments in the upper yard. She, you know, um, she spends part of the season in London. So she comes from that kind of maybe unionist leaning and um, certainly kind of more British side of um, life in Dublin. And yet she's born here. She paints the city. She, she has family here throughout her life. So she gives us another view. She reminds us of that side of the city at that time. And above all, her paintings are wonderful. But I think you've picked a great image here, um, Donald, because this captures those two sides of the city. We have Grattan here with his arm up, and just behind him, we see the the rear end of William III on his horse, um, as it was on where the, um, God, I can't remember who it is now, is it Thomas... I think Thomas Davis is it? Thomas yeah. Davis. Thomas Davis yeah, is yeah, now with yeah. the where you put the bubbles in, and <laughs> um, and of course we we know standing here that just to the I suppose right hand side of the painting we have the Parliament House, which was transformed into Bank of Ireland, and mm-hmm. the various different banks along the city. So she's showing us those th- those political changes that Nicola has been talking about in terms of the monuments. She's showing us them, and of course the William the Third uh, statue was blown up many times. It was defaced. It was. I suppose celebrated in July and denigrated on Patrick's Day and um, you know but but that is that is Dublin and Barton really captures that. Eventually blown up by um, George Gilmore a young Protestant in the the, the IRA kind of symbolically chosen to blow it up but you do have the 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 two ages of Dublin history you know you have the emergence of nationalism or constitutional nationalism in Grattan and the the back arse of unionism. (laughs) (laughs) This one is fantastic. Isn't it? Uh, so this again, is... just uh, the, the social class has really come through yeah. looking at this. I, uh, of course, walked in this gate today to, just for the novelty because it has been closed for a while while they uh, have done some conservation work on um, the sculpture. But again, this version of this scene going to the levee is from a book called Picturesque Dublin, Old and New, which Barton did illustrations for. And it was written by her friend, um, Francis Gerard, who came from a similar social background. It was dedicated to the, the vicerine of the, of the day. And it shows people going into the levee in Dublin Castle. And there's a beautiful watercolour of the scene, again, in the National Gallery's um, collection. Um, so you have the, I suppose, the haves and the have-nots, the haves in their carriages, the have-nots standing by, watching them go by in their finery. Maybe you'll indulge me, Donald, there's a little bit in, uh, George Moore wrote a brilliant book called Drama of Muslin. I just wanted to read a little quote yeah. from it. Because so George Moore writes this wonderful book, A Drama in Muslin, which some of you might know. And it's about a, a family called the Barton family, which I think is purely coincidence. I think, but you never know. But he describes the scene of um, the carriages going into the castle and he says, um, carriages came from every side. The night was alive with flashing lamps, a glimpse of white fur or silk, the red breast of a uniform, the gold of an epaulette were seen and then lost in a moment after, uh, lost a moment after in the devouring darkness. Sometimes no more than a foot separated their occupants from the crowd on the pavement's edge. 
never were poverty and wealth brought into plainer proximity. So you have these two artists, a writer and a visual artist, taking this scene of the carriages going in and, and doing it so evocatively. Um, and, you know, more obviously is much more involved with the kind of revival of circles than, than Rose Barton is, but yet there's something about this place that we're all sitting in today that, that they're drawn to. And the Statue of Lady Justice, of course, yes. facing away from... Facing away, the, the away from the city. The 19th century city was yep. the, the Lady of Justice. Mark Weller station with her face to the castle and her arse to the nation. <laughs> she faced away from the metropolis. But it's a real moment in time, isn't it? It is. It absolutely it's incredible is. Incredible yeah. to see that. Yeah. Uh, the, the poor of Dublin watching the spectacle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Nicola, in your work, you, you give the revolution its place, but I like how you, you don't let 1916 swallow up the book, which could happen. Uh, to any history of, of O'Connell Street. I mean, it's such a, a great story in and, in, in and of itself. This is Norman Teeling's taking off the GPO, fantastic painting. How did Sackville Street, do you think, re-emerge from the damage, not only of, I mean, talk about bad luck, one side of the street is destroyed in the Easter Rising, another side is greatly damaged by the Civil War. Uh, do you think that prestige was lost? Did it ever recover to that level? Joseph Brady talks about how the, the golden age of O'Connell Street might have been around kind of 1910, yeah. 1911. Do you think O'Connell Street recovered in, in newly independent Ireland? I think it did. I mean, physically, it no longer uh, was a replica of London, I suppose. They had, uh, you know, destroying the GPO and that. And uh, I would have gone around talking uh, about 1916 to schools, and I was really conscious not to, you know, we just had the whole 1916 commemoration. So from the outset, I was determined not to have too much about 1916 in the book and hoped that that was okay by my publisher. But, you know, I show a photograph of the burnt out, the shell of the GPO just after uh, the rising. And by this stage, they've had, they're executing the leaders. And it's a great photograph to show because we know on the 24th of April, 1916, the sun was a glorious summer's day. And that's why it was uh, relatively easy to walk down the street and into the GPO. The photograph I show children is the empty burnt out shell and it's lashing rain and people are just going by huddled under umbrellas and it's such an evocative photograph and I think I mean maybe I'm being sentimental and I know like I'm a novelist so I can be sentimental but the whole thing that happened there at the GPO whatever else I feel about the Collins Street today that still moves me I still stand mm. in front of the GPO and I'm still moved by what happened there and you can't take that away from the street no matter how many chip Sense shops place. they yeah. put, um, put on it yeah and, I, and businesses they did bounce back fairly quickly you know, within 11 years after 1916, you know, well, East has actually just moved down the road into a wooden shack for a while and then came back in 1919, had a brand new gorgeous shop. And Cleary's uh, kind of moved away and then came back again. They're back, I think, 1922. So the stalwarts were all back pretty quickly and are still there today. Well, you know, Cleary's is going to be, is undergoing massive changes. And that's why I just believe in this street will always be uh, rejuvenated. It'll never, you know what I mean? It, it, it continually changes, as you say. That's what it's meant to do. And that's fine, because that's what we do. We're humans. We completely, we're always changing. Yeah, and one of the best ways to view O'Connell Street, I think, is to walk down the, the traffic island. So to go yeah. down past O'Connell. And if you look up at the buildings, often it's in Roman numerals. It takes a minute to figure it out. But it'll give you the year that the buildings were rebuilt. Yeah. And you can see 1918, 1919, 1920. And then you get down to the, the block of the Civil War, and it's 24, 25. Yeah the latter damage. But you're right, I think that sense of place on O'Connell Street, the window to GPO, Oliver Shepherd's... Yeah, the sculpture. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There's very few places as evocative yeah. uh, as looking yeah. at that monument in, in the window mm. uh, of, of the GPO, yeah. I think. And then, of course, a newly independent Ireland, post, a post-revolutionary society, uh, which, you know, there's the voices of discontent within it, including in the arts. One of the arts' most significant, I think, 
left Republican socialist voices was Harry Karnoff, and he, he gets great space in your work, Catherine. Where, where did, this is probably the most celebrated and reproduced Karnoff, I think, of, of, of James Connolly James after Connolly. A Bird Never Flew on, on One Wing. Yeah. Where does Harry Karnoff come from, personally and yeah. politically, and what's going on in the arts and kind of newly independent uh, Dublin? Yeah, so Karnoff is absolutely fascinating, and uh, this for me was the starting point, was, was seeing Karnoff's work and thinking like, oh wow, this is different, it's exciting. He's unusual, he, he's not born in Ireland, he's born in London, his parents were Jewish immigrants from what is now Belarus, then Russia, and um, his father is a cabinet maker, and so Karnoff is born in London in 1900, and then in July 1914, the whole family uh, move to Dublin, where his father, you know, they become part of quite a, a vibrant Jewish community living around the South Circular uh, Road. His father sets up his cabinet making business here, and Harry, as a young teenager, is apprenticed to his father. So, it, you know, these are woodcuts from a young age. He was working with wood, he was working in, in cabinetry, and the Kernoff family have some beautiful examples of some of the, the items that he made during his apprenticeship. But it obviously wasn't uh, fulfilling his creative ambition. And he starts taking classes in the Kevin Street Technical Schools, first of all, um, and then as a night student in the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art, which, you know, over the course of the 20th century becomes what is NCAD today. And then he, his kind of first big break comes in 1923 when he wins the Taylor Scholarship. There was a prize that Walter Osborne had won. It, it was a key and still is a, a key prize for, for young Irish artists. When Kernoff won it, it was £50, which was enough for him to become a day student and to go to Paris for three months and spend a bit of time in London. It was a, it's a lot of money um, for him to come into, and, and that transforms his career, to have the opportunity to become a day student, and he would have been on a path to train as an art teacher. So there was a, a vocational element there as well. But obviously then that's where he gets to, to meet his peers, and he becomes... Um, he says himself in, in a newspaper interview later in the 1920s that from 1923, he said, it's after the Civil War, it is the jazz age in Dublin. And he says, like, there's cabarets, there's dance halls, and he is right there in the middle of it all. He's doing costumes for these cabarets, especially um, Toto Cogley's cabaret on Harcourt Street. He's doing set designs for the Dublin Drama League. He's right in the heart of it. And... Um, alongside then this, this fun and this vibrancy, which I think we forget about, you know, we've all gone on nights out in Dublin, you forget that these people in the past were no different um, to us. One of the things, my favourite things I find, I think, doing kind of research on Dublin is the, the parties during the, the Civil War curfews that ran from like midnight to 6am. So instead of sitting at home for curfew, you just went out for it. <laughs> you know, so Kernoff brings that fun, that vibrancy to the history of Dublin. Um, and that's teamed with this complete commitment to his politics, to po the politics of the left. Um, he's involved with various different groups in Dublin. As I say, these are two great examples. James Connolly uh, standing outside Liberty Hall. This is one of two versions um, of this scene that he does. The other has the plough and the stars in the background. And then this would cut, it's called Unemployed. It's actually a portrait of a man called Jack O'Neill, who in 1931 went to Russia with Kernoff um, and several others as part of a delegation from the Irish Friends of Soviet Russia. And uh, Kernoff was there representing artists. Hannity Skeffington was also on this trip. Kernoff spends the, the, I think it's about six weeks they go for, he goes to artist groups, talks to them about how their work is sold, produced, how they work. And Jack O'Neill is representing the unemployed movement. So he, he could not be better placed as a person to, to be the subject for Kernoff. So we see him here against a protest with the, the banner, we want work. And 
Kurnoff did uh, paintings of Jack O'Neill as well in a similar setting, uh, but I think the woodcut, again, he's obviously very comfortable working with wood and there's just a great mm. gesture and power in the work that he's doing. And to see one of the paintings, yeah. I mean, what, what yeah. amazes me about Kurnoff is there doesn't seem to be a street in Dublin that he didn't have an <laughs> no. attempt at or several no. attempts at. I mean, no. the importance of Kurnoff's, you write, city paintings from the 1920s to the 40s are profound. They capture so many facets of Dublin life in this period, and so many people in Dublin, like anyone who was anyone in Dublin, uh, yeah. sat down in front of, yeah. in front of Kernoff. Can you give us a sense of the diversity of it? Do we know how many Harry Kernoffs are in existence, even it's, as far it, as Dublin streetscapes go? It's a bit of a how long is a piece of string uh, type situation. Um, so he, he worked, he had a studio in Stamer Street in uh, Portobello, and the top floor, the attic floor, was where he had his studio from the time he was a student till the time uh, he died. So there was... Uh, 50 years of, of stuff accumulated. And uh, he, he had no uh, children. And so when he died, his sister Lena looked after the estate. And she divided his papers and the contents of the studio between the National Gallery and the National Library. Uh, so his literary and written papers go to the library and, and his drawings to the gallery. And I, there's about 300 sketches, I think I'm right in saying that, not just of Dublin, of various different cities and scenes. So, you know, you're looking at hundreds of Dublin paintings plus the woodcuts, plus all the portraits that he did. And I think the thing about Kurnoff, a little bit like Osborne, is that if a, if a scene is popular, if it sells, he'll do multiple versions of it. Yeah. This is a scene, this is a one of Watling Street, and I think this might be a one of a kind, but again, there are elements here that appear in other Kurnoff paintings. So another well-known work by him would be of, um, I've forgotten the name, but down in the Docklands. And like, it has the same Labour poster. It has the same Docker. I've never, <laughs> I've looked at this so many times. Yeah. The vote, the vote Labour I never noticed the vote Labour poster. <laughs> that, that appears in so many of, of his paintings. He's just, just you know, reminding you that uh, where, he, where he, he stands. And obviously, but, you know, we're in uh, Watling Street here and the Guinness Brewery and the wonderful architecture of the period. So he does repeat things. He does numerous versions um, of scenes, say like um, Wine Tavern Street. Um, there's a version in the Hugh Lane collection. And there are at least four other oil versions of that, as well as a watercolour, as well as a coloured woodcut. Mm. So, you know, he's, he's commercially minded, um, but at the same time, just creating this brilliant record and I think of the you, city. There's some really incredible Cairnoffs in really unlikely places around Dublin. Uh, the back bar of the mm. palace, where he was a regular, just, just brilliant Cairnoff, yeah. rare woodcuts. You could, um, obviously, so this book came out last December, right in the middle of, of COVID and lockdown and everything. And the plan always up until then had been to when the book came out, we would bring it on a Cairnoff pub crawl. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, because he has a great uh, print and you'll, if you go into at least Neary's and I'm nearly certain the palace have it as well it's um, called A Bird Never Flew on One Wing and it's, it's two men and behind them are the names of all of these Dublin pubs that Kurnoff went to that he knew about but definitely if you, if you were so minded I would definitely start in the palace nip up to Davy Burns into Neary's uh, maybe the Oval as well and look closely and you will still see a print if not a painting by Kurnoff on the wall so maybe it'll happen another time. This is a, a great one, and, and Nicola, was, you were yeah, saying... Yeah, it, connect, it connects the two books quite nicely. Pairing off the depiction of Nelson's Pillar. The Pillar, but also just the traffic. And, and, you know, when we think back to where we started with Gardner's Mall and, and the gentility of O'Connell Street, this is modern Dublin, full of people. And again, the woodcut is just the perfect um, medium for, for this kind of work. When we look at the woodcut, in, especially in 20th century art, it's often used by artists who would share Kernoff's politics because it's cheap. It's easy and it's cheap to produce. You can run off copies and it can be for everyone. Now, 
not all of us could go and buy one today, but at the, t- at the, <laughs> at the time, it, it was a, you know, it was a, an art for the masses. Is is where Kernoff would have how Kernoff would have seen it anyway. Are you surprised that he's kind of really come into fashion at the moment? The, like the price of yeah. Kernoff, even a wood print, has just gone up and up and up in recent years. I mean, I'm 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 delighted for him. <laughs> I'm sure he would have preferred <laughs> if he was alive. <laughs> um, because at least he, if he didn't get the the credit he deserved in his lifetime, at least it's, he's getting it now. He's well represented in public collections, and and I think Kernoff people are are quite passionate about mm. his work, and and they want to. Uh, collect it. It kind of, as we were talking about beforehand, it, it breaks my heart a little bit when the woodcuts are separated from the books he produced. He does do single woodcuts, but then he also produces books of woodcuts, and and as an object in and of themselves, they're they're wonderful. But um, you know, he's he's great, and uh, I just wish I either they were a little bit cheaper for me, or if I had more money, that would be <laughs> one or the other. One of the one of the. the... <laughs> The most significant moments in the history of O'Connell Street happens right in front, actually, of that scene that, that Kernoff mm-hmm. uh, depicts, which is the, the police riot on Bloody Sunday, 1913. I often thought about if I was writing a history of a street, obviously some of it is the buildings of the street, uh, some of it is the people of the street. But something you do in your book that I think is really clever is you take days in the history mm-hmm. uh, of the street, days in 1854, when there's, I think, two murders on the street. Double murder, yeah. And this day in, in 1913, yeah. um, romantic Ireland's dead and gone. What was it that inspired you to take that approach of, of, of looking at the, the, the days? My publisher's budget. <laughs> 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 when I dreamt of, uh, had my big middle of the night idea, I, I envisaged a big book like yours or a big coffee table book. Uh, and there was just so much history available and I could have just kept writing and writing. But uh, when my publisher said, yes, yep, Rand will do this book, but will you keep it to 45,000 words, which was the Titanic history book. So I did my best. And then I handed over a manuscript of about 56,000 words. And thanks be to goodness, they liked it and allowed me to do a bit more, 67,000 words. So this was, it was just like, how am I going to cover uh, everything? So it was the only thing I just thought again, maybe another middle-of-the-night idea, I'll just take a date and just, you know, hopefully... I mean, that's what I'm doing, I hope, with the book, just taking one thing and hopefully it's telling a lot, a, bit, a general, a bigger story. That's an incredible image, yeah. isn't it? I mean, yeah, and absolutely. It's, it's frightening. Yeah, there's yeah. a whole load of things about that image that are made. I mean, the, I didn't know when I first saw this image that on the day this happens during the lockout, most of the trade union members are actually at a rally yeah. in Croydon Park. Yeah. So these are basically kind of Ordinary Dublin people. shoppers yeah. who have just stopped to listen to Larkin yeah. and they're just waded into it. It's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? And this was front page illustrated Absolutely. from the news. And it shocked people in Britain too, not just Irish people. They saw the battens out. There was, they say some of the papers said there was 600 people injured, some children, some elderly, but most people just out walking along Sackville Street and then suddenly attacked by the police. They just arrested Jim Larkin. He'd been banned from making the speech, but he gets himself into where Cleary's was, the Imperial Hotels in one building, and uh, just kind of jumps out onto the balcony and goes, I'm Larkin. Mm-hmm. And within minutes, he's arrested. But then the police just lost it. Now, it was during a really tense week. There were strikers. The, they had called for the Dublin tram workers to come out on strike because 200 fellows had been sacked from their jobs because they were suspected of being members of the ITGW. Maybe not. So the strike was organised by Larkin. And then he's forbidden. A judge said this allowed him from making the speech, but he's determined to go along. His friends head off to Croydon to do the, the rally there. He's determined to stick to the original plan. And I suppose this photograph launched 100,000 hearts in favour of mm. him as opposed to any speech he could have made, you know, 
the emotions were running high. They said some of the eyewitnesses said the police were drunk. They had been in uniform the entire weekend and they were just there all the time. And then it was just a release of uh, pent up anger. Uh, but or a lot of ordinary people got caught up that day. When they were filming Strumpet City, mm. uh, trying to capture this scene, one of the problems they had was that the Larkin statue had been unveiled. So <laughs> Larkin was getting at the shot. <laughs> but I've seen this recreated. I remember a day they recreated with, um, I think, Terry Fagan from the North Inner City Folklore Project arranged it. But Tony Gregory, the late Tony Gregory and other people were dressed up as DMP men, you know, waiting. In. It was a really interesting day. It's, it's, it is perhaps the defining moment after the rising of, yeah. of the 20th yeah. century on, on O'Connell Street. Before we yeah. open up to the floor, if you have any questions, I think it'd be, it would be remiss to have this discussion and not end with a, a little bit of talk about the great Flora mm. Mitchell, uh, one of the great artists who comes through in your, in your book in a, in a big way, one of the great pictures of Dublin. Her book, Vanishing Dublin, is now incredibly rare. If you have one at home, hold on to it. Baffles me just how overlooked she is as an artist. Catherine, you write about her in your book mm. uh, and another contemporary. In their depictions of Dublin, Solomons and Mitchell represented streets and landmarks that evoked associations with the city's past, notable houses, places of birth, historic streets, Georgian architecture. Many of these locations had deteriorated into tenements or slum areas by the time each artist was depicting them, and the situation is either repeatedly ignored or transfixed into something picturesque. These were published at a time in the 1960s mm. when there's real anger in the city uh, around the destruction of, of heritage. People like Unshin McGowan, the Georgian Society, big battles going on for the architectural fabric as people saw it. And then the housing stuff, of course, going on too. Can you tell us a little bit about Vanishing Dublin yeah. and uh, why, why this book matters? And, and again, I suppose a little bit like Karnoff, why is this book very much back on people's radars? Yeah, so Flora Mitchell is a, is a fascinating uh, artist. She's uh, born in Omaha, Nebraska. So she, she comes a long way to, to, to publish Vanishing Dublin in 1966. But her father gets a, a position with the Jemison Whiskey Distillery um, and the family moved to Dublin. And much like her contemporaries, Estella Solomons, Harry Kernoff, she goes to the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art uh, and trains as an artist and is... I wouldn't say as involved as Kernoff. She comes from a, a different kind of social background uh, to, to Kernoff, but is contributing to similar publications in the 20s, like the uh, Free State Handbook, um, like the Dublin Corporation Civic Week handbooks, and all the time kind of illustrating the city, but in, in quite a conservative way, I suppose, in, in comparison to Kernoff. She actually ends up marrying a, a Jemison, uh, George Jemison, who is in charge of the Royal Yacht on the Isle of Wight. So there's a bit of Barton politics coming in here and so for the whole of the 1930s they're living on the Isle of Wight but unfortunately her husband dies at the end of the 1930s and so Flora comes back to Dublin very quiet through the 40s and then in the late 1940s uh, and this is why the book goes to 1949 not to 1966 which is a bit of trickery on my part but from the late 1940s she returns to to painting um, and drawing uh, presumably after her her grief um, at at, uh, what has happened to her and so she through the 50s and early 60s she's capturing Dublin as it changes probably at a time as you know from your work on Henrietta Street Donal um, at a time when Housing is, you know, at a, a really low uh, ebb, but, but things are starting to happen. Families are being moved out to the new suburbs and that type of thing. And so that, this culminates then in 1966 with the publication of Vanishing Dublin. It's a beautiful book, but only 500 copies were printed. So it is very rare. And, and as Stono says, if you have one, If you have one, it. stop slicing and dicing them. Don't, don't, People cut don't, the illustrations. Don't cut out the illustrations yeah. and, uh, and look after it. And uh, it'll be a good heirloom. Um, um, one day but 
right, so Mitchell is, um, I suppose she's in an interesting position because she has this little bit of a, an outsider's view. She's obviously coming at this from an artistic point of view and even in her own time, critics see this tension in her work where she's portraying places like this. I think, is this Dominic Street or I'm not sure which, which view this is, but they say, you know, is, is she romanticising poverty? Is she looking at this as something picturesque rather than, than the, the hardship that people are facing? Then you have the other kind of critical response is, well, that these buildings are in danger and thankfully she is um, recording them. And obviously there's a lot of photography. So Eleanor Wiltshire is doing a similar thing in photography. So there's, there's always this tension. And I think um, one critic has this great line where she says, um, Mitchell is showing us the Dublin we wish we knew rather than the Dublin we actually know. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but, that, but that's the kind of gist. So I think she's a great place to, to end this book on because she captures all of those contradictions in artists' views of the city of um, often we want them to be a, an exact record, but of, they're not. No work of art is ever fully objective, not even a, a photograph, even though it has that um, kind of cachet. But yeah, she's fascinating. Mitchell seems to have captured the imagination a little bit in terms of how she documented these places before they disappeared and how maybe now we're in another phase of that happening in Dublin as well. And, and so she's very much of, of the moment. I love the well. tension in Dublin at that time between various people, like yeah. you know, the different stakeholders. So you had like the Georgian society who were born and you know, the minister said something like, tear them down, they represent everything I hate, all these buildings, they're yeah. all alien to me. Yeah. Then you have the Dublin Housing Action Committee and they were saying, why do you want to save these buildings? You know, yeah. they said the, those who want to save the Georgian buildings of Dublin should be condemned to live in them. That was their line. So there was but a lot. There was a lot of it, arguing. It, 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 I think you know we see that today, obviously, with monuments and, and you know right through. And again, in the sixties, all of this happens around the the centen- or the the fifty year anniversary of nineteen sixteen, which is interesting. But this tension between those who want to preserve the eighteenth century city those who have to live there and those who have to live there. And, and that isn't that cities, though, mm. that um, all of us have these ideas about the ideal city, about how we would like it to be. But there's always conflict. There's, yeah. always, there's always tension there. And Mitchell, I think, very much captures all of those difficulties. So it'd be great now, uh, God, a room full of Dubliners talking about Dublin. We could be here for six hours. <laughs> but it'd be nice to open it to the floor um, for any questions or, or, or observations around those two books. First of all, thank you all very much. It's really a comment I want to make. I'm amazed that none of you actually mentioned the one female depiction statue, the sculpture that was in O'Connell yes. Street, not for very long. Um, Anna Livia, I think, is his official name. It's called an awful lot of other things by Dominic. Yeah, Anna Livia. Losing the jacuzzi is the one that I'm But there is one female statue in O'Connell mm. Street that I'm sure you know... Um, you have to look up to see it. It's the Hibernian oh, yes. yeah. from the yeah. 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 Sorry. But thank you all very much. It was wonderful. Thank you. I really like Anna Livia, and she, yeah. she's down in um, yeah. Wolf Tone Park today, yeah. down by, mm. by Houston Station. It's a really nice piece of, uh, yeah. of public art. On the matter of the female statues, I don't think we should forget the wise and foolish virgins on top of the what was a bank at the pediment of the bank in, um, at the opposite uh, McDowell's and in O'Connell Street, mm-hmm. who have looked down over all yes, of this yes. over so many years. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Very good observation. Yeah. It's curious to me how you know, women are generally uncommemorated in Dublin, but then you can end up with a figure 
who is, I wouldn't use the word overcommemorated, but it's quite funny that like Constance Markovich has a bust in St. Stephen's Green, a statue outside the doll, mm. a statue on Townsend Street. And when there was debate over what woman should have a statue on O'Connell Street, Markovich was the one immediately proposed. So we could end up with four monuments to one woman uh, in mm. the city. I really like the idea uh, of Kathleen Clark because she's yeah. someone who has an important place in civic politics yeah. uh, as, as, as a f- the first female Lord Mayor of the city. I think that, that's a great idea. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, that was absolutely um, fascinating. Um, I have two questions, one for each um, uh, speaker. Um, just in terms of um, Catherine, um, when you were looking at that era and the paintings and the range of styles, I know when we mm. travel, say, in Europe, there is this discussion about you know, Vienna has a particular style or, mm-hmm. you know, obviously Paris and London kind of transcend, but, you know, say different cities have particular uh, sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at that particularly, uh, you know, that era, was there any trends or sensibilities that you saw that Dublin either has or has evolved over that period mm-hmm. um, from an art perspective? Um, okay. I'm thinking as well, just as a, an aside, you know, that that kind of new state was also, you know, from a literature perspective, quite censorious. Mm. And I'm just wondering, was that, you know, we have this idea that the Irish state was this great liberation, but in fact, it was quite a difficult place for artists to live for much of the 20th mm. century. And I'm just wondering, was there any sense of that, you know, in the, in the art of, of the era? Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, just in terms of O'Connell Street, um, What's happened to it? I mean, is there hope for it? Like, you know, and I'm asking from the perspective, I mean, just listening to, you know, from, from you were saying you were a novelist and, you know, just from a novelist, from a poetic license or a poetic perspective, I mean, you know, I know this is a Dublin City Council event and, but just walking up there, it's, 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 it's a car crash. I'm sorry, but like you walk beyond the GPO, there's vacant sites. It's been like that for years. It should be one of the grand city, grand streets of Europe. And it's, 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 it's a disgrace. And I'm just wondering, having given your, your, your life to writing a book uh, on O'Connell Street, um, what, you know, what hope do you have or you know, what, what, what do you see as its future, um, given where it's come from? That's a big question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to include a picture of o- O'Connell Street during lockdown. I'm glad we got, yeah. got to put that up. So maybe we'll come to O'Connell Street in a minute because I'll give you a minute to think about that. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a thinker. <laughs> what to do with O'Connell Street. We'll, we'll begin with the art. Thank you so much for your uh, question. It's a really interesting one. I suppose when we look at Irish art generally, what we tend to see is not so much a distinctive style of of painting, whether of Irish painting or Dublin painting, but of a filtering through of what is going on elsewhere. And uh, there's lots of different reasons for that. I suppose geography, we're kind of a little bit over on the edge. And, and for that reason, artists usually travelled for their training. So, so they went to London, they went to Paris, they, and they pick things up and then they, they bring them back and apply them to, to Dublin. What's really noticeable when you say, look at the, this, this group of artists that, that I've been studying uh, and their contemporaries in comparison to groups of urban painters elsewhere. So particularly, say, New York or London, where you have things in New York, you have the Ashcan School, who are a group of, again, of artists on the left who are painting the city. Uh, In London, you have the East London group. Very much what you see in those bigger cities is that artists with similar interests come together, paint together, they paint the same subjects, so they do evolve this very distinctive um, style of painting. 
You don't get that in Dublin, but I think because the amount of artists painting the city are, it's a smaller number, basically. But also, and this feeds into the, the second part of your question about the guys was the economic conditions, is that all of the artists in Dublin, especially in the uh, post-revolutionary um, period and, and into the, the free state and, and the early years of of the 20 or the, the middle decades of the 20th century is that they are all united by their need to sell their work so they you don't get a group of um dublin you know artists painting dublin you get the something like the society of dublin painters who are artists who um, are working across styles across genres but who are exhibiting together to to try and keep the the show on the road so they are they tend to be for economic reasons united through exhibition rather than by by painting style or subject now, the dreaded question, what to do with O'Connell Street? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wrote this book in lockdown. So I'm originally from Tallinn. I live in Drada. That's where I wrote the book. Um, of course, I thought I would be visiting O'Connell Street quite regularly and taking photographs, and that just did not happen. Lockdown, I had to get a friend of mine, Garrett Cheney, freelance uh, photographer, to take photographs for me. And I just couldn't wait to get to the street. I kind of find I always bond with a place when I've written about it, like Derry and Belfast, and I just couldn't wait. So the restrictions are lifted. I got on the 101 in Drogheda, drops me to a Collins Street. I got off the street that I hadn't seen in a year and a half. And I was so disappointed. Mm. And I felt as I walked the street, without even really considering it, I just felt overwhelmed, like, thank goodness I could not be here when I was writing this book. So maybe the book is a little bit romantic about the street. But the thing is, I'm an optimist. And I did attend an online talk of Dublin Chamber of Commerce. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a lot of money. A lot of plans are just at the initial stages. Uh, but they have fantastic ideas. There's going to be an underground metro station. They're going to build two squares. It's going to be like Gardner's Mall all over again. There's going to be hotels and apartments and offices. And it's all about bringing back ordinary people into the city, which will then, by uh, just the natural consequence, is the ne'er-do-wells fading out into the shadows. They're hoping like, to create a street that's going to bring six million visitors a year. So I have great faith. I've listened to the talk. They are going to pay homage to the history as much as they can and keep everything as uh, you know relevant. But I think it's going to be gorgeous again. But right now, no, it's not gorgeous, no. Make up Honest Street gorgeous again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the campaign slogan. I, I actually think that the new library is, fanta- is a fantastic yeah. plan. I think that's going to bring great yeah. life to the north side yeah. uh, in a broader sense. One thing I'd love to say, I'm just back from a month in, in Berlin, and I really like how on big streets and little streets and you know every street, people live over things. I yeah. wish that was something yeah. we could return to in, in Dublin. COVID, like, days like this, I was within my 5km walking in, into the city, rest assured. Mm. But on days like this, you realise no one actually lives in the city yeah. anymore, really, yeah. and that's something we should probably deal with but folks we have to wrap it up uh, at, at that I just want to say uh, thank you so much to, to Brendan to Kate to everyone involved in the Dublin Festival of History it's also worth saying so much of the brilliant art uh, that, that's in Catherine's book you can go and see for free in this city I think that's something we should be very proud of yeah. that our national gallery and other institutions like it we can just walk in the U Lane we can walk in and look at these works of art yeah. so you know what you saw today in a screen is beautiful but to see it before your eyes uh, is, is something else uh, entirely and long may that stay the, the way it is so these are two great books, Nicola Pierce's book, O'Connell Street, The History and Life of Dublin's Iconic Street, and Catherine Milligan's book, Painting Dublin, 1886 to 1949, Visualising a Changing City. You can buy them both outside today, and you definitely should. But we'll be back uh, next year, Mars Gana. Until then, it's longer fun. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Twitter where we're at, at HistFest. Thank you.